you're going to have to bear with me this morning a bit. I have been sick last week, and my voice is still not fully recovered from it. So I'm going to have to drink a lot of water to keep from sounding like Nick Nolte. Uh, But we will get through it. Now, God through Scripture has commanded us to be filled with the Spirit. Since this is a command, God expects us to obey this and genuinely be filled with the Spirit. Now, the command in Scripture to be filled with the Spirit is worded in such a way that it applies to each and every disciple. Not a select few are meant to be Spirit-filled and Spirit-led disciples, but every disciple of Jesus is meant to be filled with the Spirit and led by the Spirit in every area of their lives. Now, the idea of being filled with the Spirit and the idea of being led by the Spirit are basically the same things. In Ephesians, what we're going to look at in just a little bit, Scripture says, be filled with the Spirit. In Galatians, Scripture says, walk in the Spirit. And they essentially mean the same thing. To be filled with the Spirit is to be controlled or led by the Spirit in every area of our life, in our mind, our will, our emotions, and our values, our priorities, and our actions, and our reactions. Uh, And not only is every disciple meant to be filled with the Spirit, but this is meant to be the normal way that we live. Right? Being Spirit-filled and Spirit-led is not meant to be something that we do occasionally. It is meant to be the way that we live our lives just on the regular basis. The command given in there is in the, uh, the present tense. The idea of keep on being filled with the Spirit. Being continually filled with the Spirit is made possible because the Holy Spirit comes to live within us after we get saved. Right? Once we turn to Jesus in repentance and faith, the Holy Spirit comes upon us and He does a, a work that Jesus called being born again, Paul called being regenerated. And at that point, the Holy Spirit lives within us. And from that moment on, we are meant to be Spirit-filled and Spirit-led in our lives. Now, question would arise, what would it look like? What would be evidence of being Spirit-filled and Spirit-led in our lives? There are lots of ways we could answer that, but Scripture gives us three specific ways. So open your Bible to Ephesians 5, verse 18, as where we're going to start, page 898 in the Pew Bible. <clears throat> when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Scripture says, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God the Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of the Lord. The title of the message this morning is Evidence of Being Filled with the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need you today. We need your Holy Spirit to guide us. As we open your word, we need your Holy Spirit to open our minds that we could receive it and we could see how this would apply to our lives. Father, I need your Holy Spirit to strengthen my voice and be clarity of thought, clarity of speech. That I could speak your words and your ways for your glory. Take what we do here today, Lord, and use it to transform us. We we have gathered here, Lord, not as a as a box to check or just because it's a Sunday, Lord, we want to meet with you. We want to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We want to know better how to be disciples of Jesus that would be lights in a dark and a dying world. So take your word this morning. Use it in a powerful way in all of our lives. 
Help us to take it, to live it out, that we would be spirit-filled and spirit-led, and it would be evident by the way that we live. We ask this in Jesus' name, for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now, after giving the command to be spirit-filled or filled with the Spirit, Scripture gives us three evidence of being filled with the Spirit. Now, the evidence is interesting, right? Now, notice, I don't know how your Bible is, but in the King James, it's it, verse 18 ends, and it's not a sentence. So, be filled with the Spirit, and then this is the evidence that you are filled with the Spirit. It is what it gives us. And the evidence it gives us is not what we would expect, probably. Right? If we were to just ask, if I were to just say, hey, what is evidence of being filled with the Spirit? We would might say, well, teach, or, or preach the Gospel, or, or share the Gospel, or be empowered to do something. And yet, what, what is listed in this passage is not those things. Now, to be sure, all of those things are a part of being Spirit-filled and Spirit-led. But what we see here, I, I think, would almost be like the, the ordinary Evidence of being spirit-filled and spirit-led, right? Because if we're spirit-filled and spirit-led, that's meant to be all of life, all the time. So we don't all teach all the time. We don't share the gospel all the time. We aren't empowered to do all of the time. By and large, we spend a lot of our time just going through life and doing life. Well, the Spirit is meant to help us in that time as well. And so being filled with the Spirit would be evident there as well. And so what what Paul gives here is what I would say are like three evidences of the ordinary filling of the Holy Spirit. And the first is a life of worship. So speaking... be a long day. Speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. <clears throat> the first evidence is a life of worship. Right now, what Paul describes here about speaking to yourselves and making melody in your heart, it's very similar to what you find in the Psalms. This says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. But speaking God's praises is meant to be a, a natural, should be a natural part of life for the Spirit-filled, Spirit-led disciple of Jesus. Right? There is something in which praise to God should always be just sort of under the surface in our speech and in our lives all of the time. Now, specifically, Paul mentions this in, in three different ways. He talks about psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Right now... Psalms would be like the book of Psalms, which was sung by the Jews in the Old Testament uh, as they went into the temple and by early Christians. Now, for us today, it would be like Scripture, particularly maybe Scripture put to song. So, sign of being filled with the Spirit is maybe just there's, there's Scripture flowing through my mind, going on, and I'm thinking about it, and it's always kind of there. Hymns are, are songs of praise which are often inspired by God's acts on behalf of His people. Hymns are also songs of praise which exalt the greatness and the glory of God, often by praising His attributes. Hymns are also often instructive. Right. So, in this case, for us, what we would say is, a hymn would be, we would just, our mind would be on the goodness, the greatness, the power, the majesty of God. 
there would be just something of, we would see the sunrise and we would say, wow, God is awesome who can inspire such a sunrise as that. And it maybe would instruct us, man, if God can do that, what can God do in me? What can God do? I should be faithful to Him. And then spiritual songs are songs which have which are basically emotional or, or carry spiritual truth. They could be testimonies, prayers, or desires. Right? And so what we might say is we just go through the day and we're thinking about what God has done for us. And it's emotional for us. Man, God has been so good to me. God has blessed me. God has answered my prayers. Like these sort of praise in my mind and in my life all the time. Now notice also it says these songs are from the heart. Right? And the idea of from the heart or making melody in your heart, it, it seems to be the idea that it would be emotive or that it would be enthusiastic. So as we are thinking these things, saying these things, worshiping God, it's not a routine. It's not like I, I set an alarm on my watch and every 10 minutes it beeps and I go, thank you, Lord, for being good. And we go on until the next time my watch beeps. It is that, man, God really is good. I mean, it, it, it is coming from in here. It is coming from a deep place within me. I, I just can't help but think about how good and how great and how wonderful God is. I think that would make sense when we look at like worship and scripture. Right? Because does Scripture teach us to shout to the Lord or mumble to the Lord? Right? Scripture teaches us that worship is something we're excited about, we're enthusiastic about. And so that should be the, the way that we live, the way that we worship, our life of worship. There should be emotions, there should be enthusiasm about it. And it's, it's to the Lord. Right? Specifically to the Lord. But this isn't just people are good. This isn't just our church is good. This isn't just I have a good spouse and I have great kids. This is God is good. It is focused on giving God the glory he deserves. Right? It will be spoken about God. It will be spoken to God. But the focus is always on God. Now, something else to notice with this is there is a, a corporate and a personal element to this. Speak to yourselves. It, it pictures the group. And then in your heart that is individual. Right? Speak to yourselves. Then in your heart. So the life of worship the Holy Spirit produces. It's not just me and Jesus. And we have our own thing. It is me and Jesus and we and Jesus. Right? If we are spirit filled and we are spirit led, we worship out there and we worship in here. It's not either or. It is that the Holy Spirit produces both of those in our lives. The spirit filled, spirit led disciple of Jesus kind of lives a life of worship everywhere they go, no matter what's going on in their lives. Spirit-filled, spirit-led disciple of Jesus also gathers with the people of Jesus and gives him praise and glory and honor there as well. 
this is a part of what the Holy Spirit produces when we are spirit-filled and spirit-led. Secondly, first, a life of worship, an attitude of gratitude. Years ago, one of my devotions I wrote for Randall House, I used the phrase attitude of gratitude. And our editor sent it back and told me to rewrite that because he thought the phrase was overused and a cliche. But he didn't edit my sermon, so I used it anyway. Now, I like the phrase attitude of gratitude. I get that it's probably cliche and overused, but I think it's also a good phrase. Because it does describe what is Paul mentions here. Giving thanks always for all things unto God the Father and in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right, so disciples of Jesus are meant to be grateful, thankful people. Think of, of someone you know who is always griping about their lot in life. And, and they never seem to have anything to be grateful about. According to Scripture, we can be fairly certain that person is not spirit-filled and spirit-led. When we are spirit-filled and spirit-led, gratitude is a natural overflow in our lives. And we say, well, how can I be grateful all the time when so many things are just bad? The key is to look for something beyond our circumstances. Circumstances are always going to fluctuate. World things are always going to fluctuate. And it will be hard to be thankful over those sort of things all the time. But we have something that never changes. right? So giving thanks always to all things unto God and the Father and the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's our key. There's what we look to to find our attitude of gratitude in. And that is what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. In some ways, we have to learn to preach the gospel to ourselves. We have to learn to remind ourselves of who God is and what Christ has done for us. Now, when we think about the salvation Jesus has provided, salvation is pictured in the Bible as past, present, and future. In in the past, Jesus did something in the present he is doing something in the future. He will do something. Right Now, we talked about this last week, so I'll cover this really quickly. But I do want to give a Bible verse to memorize. Right, Something to take and say, I can use this to give great gratitude, to give thanks to God, despite the circumstances of my life. So in the past, Jesus died for me. Right? But God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Now Romans 5.8 is a great verse to memorize. Because it has all of the elements of what Christ has done. Right In the past, Jesus died for me. Why? Because God loves me. Right? God's love for us, it has been proven, it has been demonstrated through the death of Jesus Christ. And he did that while I was yet a sinner. So Jesus didn't die for me because of some good thing I would later do for him. 
Jesus didn't die for me because of how good I was. He died for me because he loved me and nothing could have compelled him to do that. How great is that? That our Savior looked upon us, saw our sin, saw what we were truly like. Every failure, everything, and said, I love them and I will give my life for them. It's always true. Nothing changes that. Not, not the circumstances that, that stink. Not even our bad decisions. Because Jesus died for us because he loved us while we were yet sinners. So we can always be thankful for that. In the present, Jesus is still working in me to free me from the power of sin. Like being confident of this very thing that he which began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Again, this is such a good verse because God began something in us on the day that he saved us. He began something in us before he saved us. Think about that. We didn't just decide to go to God, did we? The Spirit reached out to us, said, you need Jesus. Then when we responded, God saved us and he began a work in us on that day. When does God give up? When does God quit that work? When Jesus comes back. So in, in the present, Jesus is at work on me. Are my circumstances bad? Maybe. But he's at work implying that he will never leave me nor forsake me, which is what the Bible says. This enables me to say, the Lord is my helper, so I will not fear. I will not let this dominate my life. What if the circumstances are my fault? What if I have caused all of the bad in my life? Being confident of this very thing. that He which began a good work in you will perform it. God doesn't give up on us. He paid a lot to redeem us. He's not going to kick us to the curb at the first sign of a mistake or a failure. So in the present, I can say things are a mess. But God's at work in me. He hasn't given up on me. He is still doing what He plans to do in me and through me and for me. And even if I can't see it with my eyes right now, I can trust the Word that God is true. And then in the future, God will, Jesus will finally and fully, fully free me from the power and the presence of sin. And in that day, I'll understand what the Bible means when it said that there is, that the suffering of this life cannot compare to the glory of the life to come. I'm being taken to a place where there is no sorrow, there is no suffering, there is no pain. But even in a more immediate future, the God who has begun a good work in me will do something with whatever's going on in my life. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Now, I love Romans 8.28 because of the context. The context is suffering. So Jesus is so great that he not only can work the good things in our life for our good and for his glory, he can work the bad things in our life for our good and his glory. 
He can even work our mistakes for our good and for His glory. Think about that. Right, so, now this is one I think we have to be careful with. And let me tell you my opinion on this. You feel free to, to disagree. This is a verse to memorize for yourself. But it's not necessarily a verse to give to someone else in a time of trouble. Right, here's what I mean. You're going through a tough time. And you're struggling. This is a good verse to memorize. I don't know how and I don't know why, but at some point God will use this for my good, for His glory. He will. And that's helpful. That's encouraging. If you're going through a bad time for me to come along and say, God's going to use this for your good and His glory, not as helpful as you might imagine. But we have to be careful how we try to encourage people who are suffering and struggling. This is one we learn for ourselves, but we don't necessarily give to others in those times. But God is at work. Jesus is at work. Now these things are all absolute. They're gospel certainties. Nothing of this world can ever take those away. Nothing of this world can stop what Jesus has done for us in the past and why He did it. Nothing of this world can stop Him from being at work in your life, finishing the work that was started on the day you were saved. Nothing can stop Him from bringing about your good and His glory from whatever circumstances are going on. Jesus is just that great. And so, the Holy Spirit, He kind of reminds us of this. And He enables us to be thankful all the time. We can always have an attitude of gratitude. Now, let me say, an attitude of gratitude, that's not saying acting like everything is wonderful. But there's not like a lie. It's honesty. I mean, yeah, things are bad. But God's good. That the, both, both of those are possible at the same time. It is possible for everything in life to seem bad and still appreciate the goodness of God at the same time. And when we can do that, that attitude of gratitude is always there. And the Holy Spirit, He, he works to produce this in our lives. And then thirdly, Christ-honoring submission. This may be the fastest sermon I have ever preached. People saying we need him to be sick more often. <clears throat> the word submission is one of the least favorite words in the English language, probably. People often misunderstand the concept of submitting to one another and, and what it means. Right? We, we, and by we I mean me and projecting on you. Who, who here fears submitting to others? Because you may end up being a doormat. I mean, if we talk about, like, because that's what he says, submit yourselves to one another. Isn't that what he says? Right? Submitting yourselves one to another. <clears throat> now, if you begin to do this in a group where people are talking and interacting, one well, of the first things somebody will say is, well, yeah, but, right? But I don't think you should be everybody's doormat. Yeah, but you can't just let people run over you. Yeah, but. And that's what we think submitting is. We think what the Bible says is just go out 
and let people treat you like trash, good job. That's not what it is to mean. That's not what it talks about here. Submission is essentially putting others ahead of yourself. That's, I mean, that's essentially what it is. You're, you're choosing to put others ahead of yourself. Now, what we think is, well, if I put them ahead of me, I make myself less. I, I make myself less by making more of them. But, but, let's not forget that Jesus, the one to whom every knee will bow, Submitted himself to the Father for our sakes. He submitted. He became a servant to all for our sakes. He put our needs ahead of his needs. He put our, what we want in Christ, ahead of what he might want. Now, is Jesus less than? Because he submitted? Well, of course not. Of course we wouldn't say that. So if Jesus can submit without being less than, then surely we can as well. And what it says is submitting yourselves to one to another in the fear of the Lord. Some translations say in reverence for Christ. So the picture is that just as Jesus submitted, In order to honor Him, in order to imitate Him, we submit as well. We submit to one another. And and this is what the Holy Spirit, He produces. This kind of Christ-honoring submission. Now the number one hindrance to Christ-honoring submission is selfishness. Selfishness is always going to push back against submission. Because when I'm selfish, what matters are my wishes, my wants, myself, and my comfort. I cannot imagine putting anyone above me. Because I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do when I want to do it. I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. And if you don't like that, you can get bent. But that's not what the disciple of Jesus is meant to be like. We are meant to care for one another by putting others ahead of ourselves. Let me show you this. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. should be page 900. Scripture says, if there be any for any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. Right. So he's to call for unity is what he's starting with, but 
This unity doesn't happen unless, verse 3, let nothing be done through strife and vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now what the... So in order for there to be unity, there's going to have to be submission. It's kind of the point. Right? Because does everybody always want to do exactly the same thing in exactly the same way? No. And if everybody's doing their own thing at their own way, the own like they want it, you don't you don't have unity, you have chaos, you have anarchy. So what has to happen is there has to be submission. Some people have to submit themselves to others. So in order for there to be this kind of unity and submission, first, nothing should be done through strife. Right? We shouldn't do what we do to try to stir up trouble. We shouldn't try to get people going in, in anger and, and cause them to be unhappy like that. Secondly, it says there should be nothing done through vainglory. And what the King James calls vainglory, other translations say selfish ambition. Now, selfish ambition is a problem because selfish ambition causes us to do the right things, but with the wrong motives. But in selfish ambition, we will do the right acts of service, but for the wrong motives so that we will be seen, so that we will be praised. And in doing the right thing with the wrong motives, we turn an honorable act into a dishonorable one. And we turn what should be an act of devotion to Jesus into an act of devotion to self. It turns a holy thing into a sinful thing. So we're not to do it that way. And then it's when it gets hard. In lowliness of mind, esteem others as better than yourself. Now lowliness of mind is the opposite of being High-minded, of being proud. Proud people think they're better than everyone. But when we're lowly-minded, we don't think we're better than everyone. And then, we're able to think of others, in fact, as better than ourselves. Is that a challenging thought for anyone but me? I mean, mean, I'm just going to be honest. I can be a selfish guy. It can be difficult for me to think of other people's other people's stuff as being equal with me. Much less better than me. And yet, this is what the Bible says we're supposed to do. To esteem others better than ourselves. And in order to, and as we do that, we're not looking just on our things, but also on the things of others. Now, see, here's where selfishness gets in the way. A selfish people can't do that. A selfish person cannot esteem others better than themselves. A, a selfish person will do things for vainglory. A selfish person 
might on a really good day look out on the things of others, but they will not esteem them higher than themselves. And yet, this is what disciples of Jesus are called to do. Now, we often take this and we we narrowly apply it. We apply it in a too narrow way. We apply it in the context of our homes. Husbands, esteem your wife better than yourself. Wives, esteem your husbands better than yourself. Now, to be sure, there's an application there. But this letter isn't Paul's letter to husbands and wives on the home, is it? This is Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. It also, it doesn't say Husbands and wives anywhere. It just says others as better than yourselves. Look not on your own things, but also on the things of others. So yeah, I should esteem Kelly better than me. But it doesn't end there. I should also esteem you better than me. And you should esteem your spouse better than you. But it doesn't stop there. It goes to everyone in here. It goes everywhere we go. Everywhere we go and in all that we do. Whether we're at work, the grocery store, with our neighbors. Anywhere and everywhere life may take us. We are to have a, a lowliness of mind esteeming others it's better than ourselves. Now, that's that's hard. It's for me. Maybe you're you may be a far better Christian than I am, but I find that hard. And yet, that's what we find. That, that's what it says. And this is the kind of Christ-honoring submission the Holy Spirit seeks to produce in our lives. So if we are spirit-filled and spirit-led, we will live a life of worship. I mean, that will be the normal way we do our life. We will have an attitude of gratitude for all that God has done for us in Christ. And we will live a life of Christ-honoring submission. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to just think about the way you, the general way in which you live your life right now. Do you see this evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in your life? Do your lips naturally and consistently speak? God's praises? Or are there other songs on your lips? Are you naturally and consistently grateful for all God has done for you in Christ? Or is everything always wrong in your life?
Do you naturally and consistently submit yourself to others in reverence for Christ? Or does everything always have to revolve around you? If you don't see this evidence of the Spirit's work in your life, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to be just accepted as that's who you are? Or are you going to try to push deeper into Jesus so that you can live the life He saved you to live? If you want this for your life, and really, that's what it boils down to. If the Holy Spirit does this, it's possible. The question is, do you want it? Do I want it? If we do, then first we must seek it. Jesus said in in Luke 11, that if we seek the Lord in prayer, He will give us the Holy Spirit. Cry out for the Holy Spirit to produce these things in your life. Cry out to Jesus to show you anything that hinders this. And then surrender. Scripture warns us not to quench the Spirit. Scripture tells us that the flesh and the Spirit are always at work trying to lead us. And if the Spirit is trying to lead me to praise God, and if the Spirit is trying to lead me to be thankful, if the Spirit is trying to lead me to be submissive, what's leading me the opposite? What we have to do is resist the flesh and submit to the Spirit rather than resist the Spirit and submit to the flesh. When we do, the Holy Spirit will produce these things in our lives. Let's take time and just pray right now to seek the Lord.